It's your special guest host on cliffcentral.com. And welcome to Book Central on Cliff Central. This is Nikki Temkin and I'm with you for the second Cliff Central Book Central show ever. Very pleased to be here and today we've got a very special guest. He's not in studio because he's actually in Cape Town at the moment, lucky bastard. His name is Andrew Miller and he is the author of award-winning book Dubsteps, which is the winner of the Denane Debut Fiction Award. We're going to be chatting to Andrew in a couple of minutes. I just want to say how amazing it is to be able to do a book show with a focus specifically on local literature because there's so much happening on the local literature scene right now. I've just finished reading Damon Galgut's Arctic Summer, which won the Sunday Times Literary Fiction Award recently, a couple of months ago. And I've also finished reading Alexandra Fuller's Leaving Before the Rains Come, which is about her divorce uh, to her American, of her, of her and her American husband. Very interesting, beautiful read. I've interviewed Alex on a number of occasions and written articles on her. Very interesting woman. So those are two books on the local landscape. One of them an African writer, one of them a South African writer, both of whom you should really read if you haven't. But now it's time to introduce Dub Steps, which is an apocalyptic look at the future of South Africa. Suddenly, Roy Fotheringham wakes up one day and everybody has just disappeared. And so we're going to be tuning in now to Andrew Miller, who's going to be telling us a little bit more about what is actually going on in Dubstep's and why are you so pessimistic, Andrew, about the future of Josie. Andrew, are you there? I am. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, you're coming to us from the sunny or not so sunny Cape Town. I'm yes, not a sure. little bit gray and rainy. Okay, a little bit grand rainy. Okay, well, I don't feel sorry for you because it's 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 pretty anyway. Yes. So, Andrew, you've just been the recipient of a prestigious award. Did I pronounce that properly? It's Dinane. Uh, Dinane, I think. Is the Dinane Debut Fiction Award. And is yes. that specifically for African writers? It's for South African writers. It's run by the Jakarta Literary Foundation, and it used to be called the EU Literary Award. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's for debut fiction uh, manuscripts, essentially. So this is your first book, and it's your debut book, and it's won this this big award. So obviously that, that feels really good to you, and there's been a lot of spotlight on this book, which yes. might I say, and I absolutely hate describing things like this, but it's sort of a cross between Margaret Atwood Lauren Bukes and I don't know some kind of other sci- sci-fi writer. Um, <laughs> is that the genre that you were? Is that the genre that you're interested in? Is that the genre that you read? No, not at all. In fact, I mean, I just um, <laughs> I kind of just had an idea, and so I, I, I went with it, and it turned into a sci-fi book or a spec fiction or or whatever they like to call it. Um, but I had no aspirations uh, for that particular genre. You know, it was just the idea that that, that kind of led me there. Yeah. And so did you plot out the book before you started writing it, or did it kind of take you in surprising directions? Yeah, no, I didn't plot anything out. You know, I, I kind of wrote it half an hour before work every day for a few years. Okay, you, know? you like my hero. I mean, how <laughs> do you do that? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know, I like for a living. I'm a ghostwriter. I'm a commercial writer. And I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to start writing fiction around about this age. You know, uh, and so I thought I better start. Um, and for and the so record, just, your age is sort of... What? I'm 41. 41. Okay, so yeah. similar, similar age to me. I've also got plans to write that novel, but you've actually done it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's a, it's a, once you get into the habit, you can go with it. You know, it, it's, it's a real challenge, I think, finding the structure in your life to fit it in. 
Mm, it's um, take, it requires a lot of discipline, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I think I, I think discipline sometimes overrated. You know, I think st- structure for me. Once I had actually carved out uh, that time, um, then I didn't actually need as much discipline as I thought. You know, then it just became a routine, something I do after the washing, washing the dishes, but before I was going off to work. You know? yeah. And so, how long did that take you? That process, that structure. I, look, it took it took me about three years to draft it. You know, and then another couple wow, of years. Wow, three years. That's a really long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I, my life has changed a lot since then. And so now I'm writing a lot more and uh, I can write a lot faster. But at that time, really, my wife and I were running a, an organization in the city and I didn't have a lot of time at all. Um, and so, yeah, you know, 40 minutes, half an hour in the morning, it's going to take you three hours, to come, uh, three years to come up with a draft. Yeah. So when you say drafter, that means it was sort of the initial rough draft and then you began to fine tune it. Yeah, yeah, I, I knocked out a rough draft, which was quite different to the book that, that ended up being published. And then and then I had the idea, you know, a, a start and an end, and then I could kind of go back and look at it again and reshape the idea. Uh, you know, it, because I didn't have anything uh, in my head when I started writing it, that's one of the drawbacks of taking that approach, is that you got to accept when you reach the end, you're probably going to have to go all the way back and, and re-look at it. You know, which is which is what I did. And so, when did the publisher come on board with, with the book and kind of give you any directional guidance, or did you just present? No. Them, you know, <laughs> with here's my manuscript. Do you like it? Will you publish it? Well, I mean, this is the weird thing is, and it still feels a little odd. I never got to sign the book off at all because I entered the manuscript in the competition. You know, right. and I had in fact actually just given up on it completely. I was already well into a second book, which I thought was much more maybe sellable. But uh, just on the off kind of chance, and also because I know that you have to go through the process, you know. So I printed off the, the manuscript and I dropped it off at the competition offices and forgot about it. And then they have the award ceremony where they present you with a published book if you win it. Right. And that was me. Yeah. Okay. This <laughs> and so it, it was in the shops within a week, you know. So uh, are you and still, I had no input. So are you still sort of in, in shock? About yeah, how, because, how it all happened. Yes, it's bizarre, you know, because it's still going. You know, it's, that happened in May. I, I got the email about being shortlisted in March, which for me was an achievement enough. I thought I had achieved something big. Uh, the award happened in May, and I, I've kind of been doing publicity for six months on this thing. Um, and it, it's a thing I gave up on, you know. And so I feel a little bit shamed in myself about <laughs> this book because I'd completely abandoned it. I didn't think it was a very good book, you know. And now I talk about it all the time as if, as if it's, uh, it's my loving son, but I mean, I did abandon it a little bit. You actually abandoned him, threw him out, threw him out the house, and now he's yeah, the, the yeah, returning he prodigal back. son. Okay, but he's he's done good, so you can pat <laughs> yeah, him on the back. <laughs> it's all right; he can come into the family. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the book itself because it's a very interesting book. I have not read any South African, and I do read most a lot of South African literature, especially over the last couple of years when the publishing landscape in this country has sort of exploded. Yeah. And there's just books sort of in every genre, every type of story, uh, award-winning stuff. Some of it, you know, there's always going to be uh, some mediocre stuff, but a lot of it has been really, I think, great yeah and your book sort of reaches into a genre that has not that i've not read before in this country and as i said in my introduction that it's sort of a dystopian look at the future of well it's based in johannesburg so we'll keep it there not really south africa at large a look at what johannesburg would be like would just a small team would there be some kind of apocalypse and just a small group of survivors 
remain Um, and a look closely at the kind of relationships that they form, how they see the future, how they see the past. And I saw it as this little group, was it supposed to be a microcosm of sort of society at large in a South African context? You know, uh, it's kind of a reflection of, I I think, of my life at the time, you know, because my wife and I, my wife Robin and I were running this gallery. We ran it in the city for about 10 years. And uh, it was kind of a developmental space, um, and it was a multimedia kind of setup. And and really, we were um, running this organization, and I was the only white guy on my side of the office, surrounded by lots of black friends, you know. And uh, and there are all sorts of issues, as we all know, in South Africa that come with that, because I never have learned indigenous languages and so forth, you know. Um, and so I had all these friends in many ways I felt were carrying me through my cultural environment with, with some degree of grace and style, you know. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of white South Africans live in this kind of environment where you slightly detached from the place where you live in because you don't speak the language and therefore you don't understand many of the nuances of what's going on around you. And I think when I look back on the book, the main character, Roy, the protagonist, reflects, I guess, a lot of that experience. He's He's a fundamentally alienated guy, you know, and he never quite ever does anything uh, with his life. He thinks a lot about everything, but he never manages. To so get I was wondering if, if yeah. there were any parts of Roy that you what was sort of that you wrote yourself into him in some ways, or your sense well, of think, alienation. Yeah. yeah, well, well, I think it's a very white South African experience. You know, you 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 living this life in this society where you're always a little bit detached. You know. Um, and, and I guess that just kind of came out in the book. And it was a conversation we all had a lot in the gallery for all those years, you know, and we were all pretty close and we worked on a lot of projects together and we used to laugh about this thing all the time, you know, and it used to play out in many different ways. And so I think it was quite conscious in my mind and everyone's minds in, in the organization we ran, the many ironies of being South African. It doesn't only apply to white people, it applies to it's all sorts of aspects of Southern African life, you know. And I think when I look back on the book now, I see that reflected in the kind of the plot setup um, that, uh, that the book uh, rotates around, yeah. And actually, Roy is the only white, white survivor there amongst the men. He's the yeah. only one who's white. Yeah. But, and I actually felt his character seemed quite comfortable around the, the, the black men and that never sort of, it wasn't a conscious discomfort that I noted yeah. in him, although perhaps it was beneath the surface. Yeah, yeah, I think I think he, he, he you know, he wasn't really uncomfortable with uh, his social environment, but he wasn't an active participator in that environment either. You know, he was kind yeah. of when anything when anything anything serious happened in the story, he kind of went jogging. You know. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And you yeah. sort of had the feeling that in his former life, be before the apocalyptic happening or whatever yes. it was, yes. that he kind of just fell into things. He never yes. really steered himself in any conscious direction. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and in that sense, to me, he's, he's a, a classic narcissist, you know, a huge amount of thought, um, but very little action in any direction. Yeah, except you kind of like him. You know, there's, there's yeah, never yeah. – you're still a very, very likable character. And at the end of the day, the, the sense that one gets from Roy is that all he's really searching for is that human connection. Absolutely. And that, very that love. 
Yeah, he's very likable. He's searching for love and so forth. He's not completely trustworthy either, though. You know, mm. when he tells his story, you're not, uh, yeah, I wouldn't believe everything he says. No. <laughs> yeah. well, no yeah. you're, now you're really ruining him for me. I kind of <laughs> liked him. <laughs> and he never really seems to have a problem with, you know, he at the beginning there's, for, for those of you who haven't read the book, I'm not going to give too much away by talking about the plot, but sure. he does, one of the other survivors is a woman called Babalwa, Yes. And Roy uh, starts up a relationship with her. She comes from PE, and there is quite a lot about the la- the landscape in the book, and yes. the landscapes between cities, and they almost represent some some form of of consciousness brought to life. And Johannesburg's this kind of overgrown, weedy city that's being taken over. When I say weedy, I don't mean small. I mean full of weeds and overgrown plants and flowers and trees because we are such a, a lush city in, the, in that way, vegetative-wise. And you kind of get the sense that everything's just out of control, but there is a kind of calm beneath this chaotic surface. I don't know if that was intentional when you were writing it. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, it, it was a, because I had no idea for the book, I, I really just had a, a basic idea that I wanted to explore, and, and that was what would the world be like if, human relationships were the primary currency, you know, and the things that are currently our primary currency uh, were no longer in play. And that was the premise that uh, that kind of started the book. And then I just tried to follow the plot line as much as I could, you know, and then my wife and I uh, started driving around Joburg and looking at it in the context of uh, the apocalypse. What would this place look like if there was no one around, you mm-hmm. know? And and then when you look at Joburg in that way, uh, your obvious conclusion is that it would basically be swamped pretty quickly with <laughs> with foliage because it's such a big forest. Mm, and let's talk know. about the wild pigs as well. Yeah, the free pigs. Yeah. <laughs> the free pigs. Because <laughs> I found them quite horrifying, not just because I'm a Jew and I don't like pigs to begin with. You know, I'm not actually a traditional Jew, but the one thing I've been indoctrinated against is pigs. I can't pigs. understand it. <laughs> But funny, you know, the pigs were just a joke to myself, you know, um, and they, they never really explained in the book, and they, they never take any form. They just hover around the edges. Mm, they're not actually dangerous in any way. <laughs> no, and, they, and, and you, you're, not, you're not quite sure what, what free pigs even mean, you know. Uh, they, you get the sense they may have escaped or become free, but it's never explained. But it's interesting, you know, representations of what things mean and so forth. Pigs are very powerful kind of symbols, you know, they that they used all sorts of ways in storytelling, you know. And uh, I, I kind of just dropped them in there, and, and then they, I, I really enjoyed them hovering around the edges, you know, mm. and, 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 and the idea that, uh, that, that often in the real world, in our real lives, the, uh, uh, much is not explained, you know. Mm, so the, the danger with telling stories is you try and explain everything all the time, but in the real world, often you go through many experiences that you never understand. You know, and it was the three pigs that just kind of uh, were that for me. Uh, but it's been fascinating because everyone comments on the pigs. You know. I don't know because, yeah, like you say, they're just such a, a powerful symbol of I don't know yeah. what. And I think it was in Margaret Atwood's book, Mad Adam. Yeah. I think she also had pigs in there. Yeah. And it was some kind of also dystopian, apocalyptic f- future. But the pigs in there were quite dangerous. Yeah, and, yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because what I've realized is that w- when you don't explain something or, or when you offer something to the reader w- without a detailed explanation, um, you give a reader space to interpret it 
the story themselves. And the fascinating thing is how uh, different readers interpret the pigs. You know, everyone's got their own idea of who the pigs are and why they free pigs and, and the role they play. So you've and just I been no sitting back and enjoy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's quite strange, but your your book itself is almost... I don't, I don't want to say overgrown because that sounds negative, but in a way, the, the structure of it, the way that it's written is almost meandering, yeah. like the way that Johannesburg has see, kind of seeded itself in yeah. this, uh, in this environment, in this new environment where people aren't its caretakers, so to speak, anymore. And it's yeah. just left to, to do what it will do, uh, yeah. to rack and ruin or to grow or to, you know, develop in strange angles and in strange places. And as you say, the human relationships also do that and yeah. they are central to the plot of the book. And it's funny, you mentioned before about human relationships being the only currency left, really, when everything else falls apart. Yeah. But yet all of this power play still comes into action amongst the group yeah. because egos will still persist. There will always be power struggles. There will always be power play, even in a world like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think, you know, it was a, it, because it took me so long to write because I wasn't really writing it. I was doing other things. And it, it was interesting to explore the story as it developed in my own mind. And, you know, I came up with ideas of what may have happened and, and explanations and so forth. But towards the end of the process, I, I really started to enjoy the idea of creating space within the story and not uh, compelling myself to drill down an exact uh, precise timeline and chronology of events and so forth. And when I, when I kind of cottoned onto that, I felt like the book started to take shape, you know. Then it started to become an enjoyable read, and it re reflected, in my view, what it might be like, uh, you know, if the apocalypse ever comes or if something vastly dramatic happens, we probably will have no idea what the hell happened, you know, <laughs> if and, we manage you know, to I'd, survive. And yeah. I've been putting off asking this question, and I haven't actually finished the book because yeah. my book central slot was sprung at the last moment, and I didn't have time to, <laughs> to, to finish the book completely, so I'm looking forward sure. to reading the rest. But is there an explanation in the book, or is it one of those spaces that you leave for what actually happened? Well, there's a suggestion that and Roy has ideas, but, uh, but his ideas become less and less clear to himself. Um, and, and, it, and it all becomes a little murky, and, and the problem is that he gets old. You know? And when I finished the book, I decided to myself that after all was said and done, it actually just turned out to be a story about a guy getting old. You know? mm. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and I, think, I think I have the sense that, that at the end of one's life, there's this kind of blurriness that, that develops, you know. And, and, as I, and I really enjoyed the way that the story ended. It kind of uh, tapped into that, you know, mm. the, that kind of... So it that, kind that, of that, comes that full circle, control. right? Yeah, that, that loss of control, you know, of, of your environment and your understanding of what's going on around you. I think as you get older and older, it becomes harder mm. to stay in touch with the world as it, as it kind of swishes around you, you know. So that yeah. group of survivors is almost just a big brother metaphor for the aging process and getting old. And your yeah, world exactly. kind of shrinks. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. <laughs> everything <laughs> just kind of gets a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, and it becomes a little confusing. And, and uh, it, it, it's hard to pin down exactly, exactly what matters. And, and really what, what you're left with is your story. You know? You're left with your story. You're left yeah, with I your know. own story. Even yeah. if you, your story intersects with other people's, as it does very much within yeah. the course and of even your life. If you're, yeah, and even if your story is complete rubbish, and it's not true, uh, you wouldn't even know. You know, <laughs> our stories are our <laughs> stories. And, and as we grow older, um, whether they are fact or not, it matters less and less. Uh, uh, what matters is that they are the stories of our lives, you know. 
Yeah. Mm, absolutely. And there is one part that is, well, that was quite confusing to me was when, when he gets involved with the virtual reality world of Tebza, who is yeah. one of the characters in the books who's always a little bit disconnected. Yeah. And then at some point during the book, and I don't want to give away too much, but Roy finds out that Tebza's actually been drinking sort of these nanobot, nanobot technology, which yeah. offers him a virtual reality from the reality that he's trapped in, which is this yeah. um, apocalyptic future where there's just a small group of survivors. Yeah. And then Roy also starts to, to get involved with that. And was that a conscious decision to have that sort of th- sub-theme with all this digital technology that uh, brings us closer together, polarizes us at the same time, uh, that yeah. kind of thing? I mean, I was intrigued, and I'm still intrigued by the idea of our relationship with our algorithms and how complicated it's getting, you know. And, uh, and, and, and Tebza has, because he was high at the time in a virtual reality space when the apocalypse happened, he, he has this ongoing suspicion that he might still be in a, in a, in a virtual reality space, you know, and maybe he's caught in a piece of software that's gone wrong and he can't escape, you know. And what, and, a terri- and, what a terrible thought. Yeah, absolutely, and he can't shake it, you know, and, and, and so he behaves very strangely, and he's actually, Roy figures out, uh, as the story goes on, that he's, he's never quite with the group because he's always tapping his device, hoping he can find his way out of the software, you know. Um, and uh, but it, it, for me, it reflects, I think, or the, the idea I was interested in at the time is, is how complex our relationship is getting with this, the thing we've created in terms of digital technology and how easy it is to become fully immersed in our kind of virtual spaces. And, of course, we're only at the beginning of this change, you know. Um, in 20 years' time, our relationships with, our, with each other are going to be hugely complicated because of the influence of virtual spaces, you know. Technology um, and, uh, yeah. has disrupted everything, including our human relationships and the way that yeah. we interact with each other. And as you say, it's quite frightening to think, what, what will it be like in 20 years' time? Yeah, Our children and their children and the future. Yeah. There's this graph. There's Ray Kurzweil is one of the fathers of the singularity kind of theory scene, which is this whole kind of debate as to when computers will become smarter than us and take us over. You know, And it's a whole kind of field of academic study and social study and so forth. But he developed a graph of, uh, the, the, of human technology. Um, and, and the point of his graph is that we're actually in a, a phase of double compounding change because not only is the the ability of our technology compounding all the time, but the uses to which we're putting the technology, the, that rate of change is also compounding. Mm-hmm. And so his, his graph kind of points out that we're just at the beginning uh, and it's about to tilt vertical. So, you know, the speed of change that we've just experienced in the last 10 years, we're now going to experience in the next five years. You are frightening me, on from there. Yeah, you are and frightening me. I really me. like that idea you know, of exploring that idea because we think the world has changed a lot, but just give it another 10 years, we may not recognize anything. You know, We yeah. created this parallel universe, and actually at the end of it, we, we won't be sure which universe we're living in, the one that exactly. we've created, the parallel universe or the, or the exactly. one. Exactly, mm. and you, you only have to look at shopping malls and airports and so forth and the way people walk around with their devices, uh, lock their eyes locked into their devices to know that we're already quite significantly immersed. We know, are, in but it's, it's amazing how many people actually drive around in the traffic with their eyes on their phones instead of yeah. on the road. And I know I'm guilty of that too. Yeah, we all are. It's yeah. an addiction. It's a, it's a, it's a massive addiction. Yeah, um, so, so we, we do for another step change in technology. Some, you know, something else is going to change. And, and then, you know, things that are now sci-fi ideas, virtual reality and so forth 
could become um, part of our lives much quicker than we expect. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in the idea of of becoming so immersed in the virtual space that you can't get out of it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting because your characters, uh, back to the book, obviously have to contend with having absolutely no technology. Yeah, and no cloud, you know. No yes, cloud. there's no cloud, yeah. and that's, that's mentioned a lot, you know, frequently yeah. in the book, which is, yeah. you know, the, yeah, there's nothing, and they're left with no, no former, almost evidence of their lives except for their memories and their thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of um, how inelastic our relationship with the cloud has become. You know, in, in the early days of the cloud, it was a choice to utilize the cloud, you know. Uh, you would utilize it actively for a certain purpose. But now it's becoming, the, the cloud is just becoming kind of stitched into the fabric of our existence, you mm. know. So the choice to use the cloud or not is disappearing pretty quickly, you know. Mm. So our relationship with the cloud is getting very kind of very rigid. Um, and, it got, you know, what would happen if the cloud ever disappeared? It, it would be an extraordinary kind of thing already, you know, and we're just at the beginning. Absolutely. So this I'm talking to Andrew Miller about his award-winning book, Dub Steps. And we are talking so many interesting things. So don't go anywhere. You're on Book Central, on Cliff Central. Uh, you can stream on cliffcentral.com. Uh, tune in. We're going to be back. We're just going to play a song or two. Sir Richard Branson had a game-changing idea. He made it happen. You have a game-changing idea. And now Sir Richard wants to discuss it with you aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. Presenting Dream Tropeneur. Email dream at cliffcentral.com with your one-minute video or audio recorded business plan. If our panel of judges think it's a game-changer, you'll be one of ten to attend a course at the Joburg Branson Center of Entrepreneurship. Then, two final winners will take home 40,000 Rand in cash, 140,000 Rand's digital marketing package, one week in London attending Global Entrepreneurship Week, and time with Sir Richard Branson aboard the Virgin Atlantic 787 Dreamliner. An idea is only ever an idea until you make it happen. T's and C's apply. Go to cliffcentral.com for more info. Are you South Africa's next dream entrepreneur? This is cliffcentral.com. And we're back, and you're on bookcentral.com. This is Nikki Temkin, and I'm talking to Dubsteps author Andrew Miller. Andrew, you still with us after that musical interlude? I am, I am. Good. So we were chatting about Dubsteps, which is your award-winning book, a dystopian look at the future in South Africa of a group of survivors with nothing left except each other. So we've spoken quite a little bit about about the plot, and I've noticed in your biography on yourself you are very interested with, with urban culture. Is this true? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in Joburg kind of... Cultural what, what, scene. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I used to be young. And, uh, then you, I we're still, we're not that old. <laughs> we're not that old, Andrew. Come on, you know. I'm getting old. Are you I'm on Instagram? Old. Let's do a little litmus <laughs> test. Are you on Instagram? No. Well, I am. I posted eight photos, I think, in... No, that's yeah. not good enough. Okay, you're old. No, no you're going to have to do something about it. <laughs> and was the book also, you know, in South Africa, we have so many... It's so great to read something that isn't literally about apartheid or our, our past in that literal sense. Yeah. However, beneath the surface of the plot, one also does get the very strong idea that these characters are also healing some kind of past wounds um, in order to create a future for themselves. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've been involved with a lot of young creative people, rappers, poets, fine artists, and so on, 
through my life, and it, it's been a wonderful experience, and it's been a joyful experience, largely, you know. And that doesn't mean that we don't all come from different places and have a very complicated political and social history and so forth. Um, but I wanted to write something that reflected our lives, you know, our music, our interactions, and that wasn't kind of in the sort of moralistic uh, apartheid mo- mode, you know, where where the text is supposed to teach the reader some kind of lesson uh, on a moral or a political level. I wanted to write something that reflected the the, the existence that I know, you know, and so I, I tried to tap into the, the enormous fun I've had in Joburg for the last 15 years, you know. And yeah. it's so great because one also reads so much literature out there about the dark side of, of Johannesburg. And although yeah. it is quite a dark thing that happens in the book, it's yeah. written in a lighthearted way. And there's, there's never any, any part where you just feel like, oh, no, this is just too awful. I, I can't even read it. Um, yeah. It's written in a way that is quite palatable. Although you don't shy away from from negative things, uh, negative human emotions, things that happen between people, horrible feelings, uh, it's not that sort of very dark, pessimistic view uh, of the world. I mean, I said in my introduction that you were quite pessimistic, but I take that back now on second thought. It's actually not that pessimistic. In fact, one thinks it might be quite nice to be able to recreate a world and to recreate a future the way that you want it to be, just sort of a a band of survivors. And obviously it's a lot easier than in The Walking Dead. I'm a huge fan because there aren't uh, zombies. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) absolutely. Look, I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways the book reflects my experiences working with uh, creative collectives in the city for such a long time, working with young artists and poets and so on. You know, most of the time, the projects I've been involved with haven't worked. You know, people invest a lot of time and money in trying to build careers and so forth. The whole thing explodes. Everyone loses their money and, and relationships are challenged and so forth. And I've always been really inspired by the good spirit of the people I know in and around Joburg to well, carry on working with each other and uh, developing new projects and so forth in in a fantastically kind of positive uh, spirit. And even though this project may have failed, it's fascinating to look back on all the people that I've been involved with in the city and to see that most of them have gone on to really good, strong careers um, and have managed to achieve a lot by learning um, through their failures. You know, and I've, I've been personally inspired by the personality of the artist in Joburg. Well, I have to say, you know, before we wrap up, it's been a very, very interesting discussion. And on a personal note, I mean, Andy, I've known you for a really, really long time. I haven't seen you for a really long time. I think probably the last time I saw you was maybe in 2002. Andy and I met when we both worked on a website, which is still active today in a fantastic um, portal for what's happening in Johannesburg. That's JHB Live. We were yes. both writers and at various times editors on that website. And I must say that I, I often think that the way that one sees the world is also through the the eyes and the lens of the kind of person that you are. And so, Andrew, I remember you being an exceptionally positive and very optimistic, warm-hearted person. So that's also, I think, why you why you see the world through those eyes and why you have such a positive outlook. So well, from, from my point of view, and that is how, how, how I remember you. And so <laughs> I wish you very, very well with this book. And we really do look forward to reading the next one. Just briefly, Pracy, pretend you're in English class. Pracy, quickly in a nutshell, what, what is your next book about? It's about grammar and English. 
Sounds novel. just up my alley. I'm a complete, <laughs> um, I'm p- a perfectionistic about grammar. <laughs> <laughs> it's, an, it's a novel about English and the role English plays in our current society and the struggles we have with English as a country um, and just how much of a defining kind of feature English and grammar is in your chance to progress or not in South Africa. Yeah. I love that. So it's sort of a linguistic a look at linguistics and language and the importance of how it connects people or connects you to the world or not. Yeah, and, so, and I think everyone has a choice to make in South Africa about how they're going to approach English. It's a really strange thing, you know, and there's there obviously many issues that spin off from that, but English is a very strange thing in global society and in South African society. And so I wanted to write about my experiences with English um, and so, yeah, that's the next novel. Yeah. Well, it sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it in, what, about five years? No, I'm nearly <laughs> done. I, as I say, I accelerate okay. so I'm hoping to get it out next year sometime. Well, we look forward to reading it. Andy, th- thanks so much for joining us on Book Central here on Cliff Central. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you very much. It's your special guest host on cliffcentral.com.